Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris. I'm co-founder of the online magazine, The Refined Woman, and my vision is to create a safe space where we can take off that Superman cape of having it all together and share our stories authentically and honestly. I really believe people are dying for the permission to be vulnerable, to just go there. But it takes someone being willing to go there first. It's my desire to do just that and invite you and others to do the same by removing that shiny mask of perfection and courageously sharing the imperfect journeys of life, spirituality, love, business, and everything in between. Hey, hey, it's Kat Harris here, host of the Refined Collective Podcast. What is up, friends? Thank you so much for being on this journey with us. I just get so excited to chat with the people I get to chat with every week. It's honestly like secretly a selfish thing for me because I get to have this platform to talk with people and have meaningful conversation. And the fact that you listen to it, I can't even begin to tell you how much it means to me. I just want to thank you for for listening, for sharing on your Instagram, for DMing us your thoughts on each episode. I read every single one of them. Thank you so much. So before we get started on today's episode, I want to ask you a favor. If you really love the Refined Collective podcast, if it resonates with you, go on iTunes. You can use the Purple Podcast app on your phone or go on your computer, iTunes, look up the Refined Collective Podcast and subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It's super helpful for us as we are trying to get our our voice out there to more and more people. And I just wanted to share with you a review that someone left about the episode a few weeks ago with Johan Kalilian. He says, so good. He says, yo, I followed Johan on IG and came right over to check out this podcast. So much truth, so much transparency. I'm not where you guys are in life, yet I still am. Does that make sense? This is beautiful. Keep up the life-changing work, Kat. Um, thank you so much for reviews like this. Again, it means so much. And this isn't to toot my own horn or puff up my ego. This is to give you guys uh, an opportunity to comment on what is meaningful for you guys. And it helps our podcast to get out there to more people. And if you haven't checked out the episode with Johan Kalilian, be sure after you listen to today's to go back to his, it's called Jesus Desire and the Deconstruction of Sex. It's a great conversation. I was honored and humbled to have it. So please subscribe, rate, review us, screenshot it, share it on your social feed, tag the refined woman and the refined collective. And I promise I will respond to you personally. Again, thank you so much for this opportunity. Love you guys. Let's get on today's episode. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Refined Collective Podcast. I am your host, Kat Harris. And this week we are talking about success and balance and this idea of rest, self-care, things being hard. And I am so honored to get to chat with the person I'm talking with today. Um, It's a crazy story how we got connected. Um, But first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. 
we are talking with Reagan Pugh. It's another man. And by now, for those of you listening, you might have followed The Refined Woman, my online magazine, which thank you so much for being a part of the tribe. The reason that I called this podcast The Refined Collective is because I wanted to expand the vision of The Refined Woman. I want to give space for women and men to share their story. So you're going to be hearing from more and more guys on this podcast. So Reagan has consulted on storytelling, culture, and leadership training at companies like Nike, PepsiCo, Western Digital, Home Depot, and Kimberly Clark. He served as the chief storyteller at the innovation consulting firm Calypso and taught business leadership courses at Texas State University, Trinity University, and Angelo State University. As a Teach for America course member, he was a high school English teacher and theater director on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota, where he led the school to win the state one-act play competition for the first time in school history. Reagan believes any moment people are gathered in a room is a gift, an opportunity for collaboration and productive dialogue. But unfortunately, most leaders and organizations waste this opportunity on a daily basis. This reality led him to co-found Assemble, a consulting firm focused on design designing new ways for teams to collaborate and do their best work together. He's passionate about the work of the Epilepsy Foundation, performs improv regularly around Austin, and probably knows more about Batman than you do. <laughs> so I'm guessing his his Batman is my Beyonce. Um, so Reagan, welcome to the show. I'm so grateful to have you on today. Thanks for coming. So glad to be here, particularly... Because like in high school, you, you were the cool older chick and here I am getting to hang out with you. No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. We were, so for those of you guys, here's more context. Reagan and I went to high school. I was a senior, you were a junior, and that's when we really started hanging out, if I'm correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And you were, I just remember you as this like fun, outgoing, just loud personality <laughs> <laughs> too much energy an obsession with the Olsen twins yeah all kinds of weird stuff I mean all the all the things you know I, I get it I mean I have an un, probably an unhealthy obsession with Beyonce mm. and I'm getting better about my love for Justin Bieber now that he's an engaged man <laughs> okay okay you, you're doing good work keep at it <laughs> um, okay but I feel like before we start chatting okay what are two things about Batman that I don't know that I should know oh man yeah well I mean you know he has the superpowers uh, <laughs> which is why I think that he's so important because it's just like internal fortitude and pure will that causes him to be able to play with the big dogs um, <laughs> I love that and you know uh, you know, you might also know a little bit about his love life. He tends to kind of have some weird romantic interactions with the women who also try to kill him. I don't know if that's the reason why I like him, but it's certainly <laughs> fascinating. Is it like a form of like weird self-sabotage or like I want to fix this woman and then she ends up being bad for me? Like it feels really metaphorical to me. At least I've dated a lot of guys in the past that I needed fixing. <laughs> totally metaphorical. And, you know, I think that in any good relationship, there has to be some kind of a, you know, a physical fight. I'm joking. That's a joke. <laughs> I um, was like, oh, we're <laughs> But he's, I love him. And, and also the fact that, yeah, he's, he's kind of a, a lone wolf. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that probably, I didn't know this as a kid, but as I've grown, um, that I probably have some of those qualities as well, that mm-hmm. I, I enjoy the quiet work. So you resonate with Batman because you secretly think you're Batman. You are Batman. I can't tell you that, Catherine. You know that. <laughs> Dang it. I'm trying to put you in a hole there. <laughs> okay, so I want to tell people why... I'm having you on here today, Reagan. So Reagan, you and I, we went to high school together. We were friends. And like a lot of people, we lost touch um, for no other reason besides life happens. And then the incredible world of social media, I was on a little thing called the internet about a month ago. And I don't know if it was, I'm pretty sure it had to have been on my Facebook feed a TED talk came up and it said Reagan Pugh. And I was like, oh my gosh, Reagan, the guy I went to high school with did a TED talk. And I watched your TED talk and like Google stalked you until I found your email, emailed you and said, dear Reagan, I don't know if you remember me. We went to high school. I need you to talk about your TED talk on my podcast. So that's, that's the story. Um, and I was honestly, I was like, I don't know if you're going to remember me. It was like kind of vulnerable. <laughs> it made my day. I, I saw you come across. You're like, I don't know if you remember me. I'm like, yes, I remember you. You were my entree into the senior class. <laughs> yeah. yeah, We had a cool group. We had a great group of friends. Um, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about your TED Talk. First of all, I kind of painted a picture with your resume, but... Give some color to what you're up to, what led you to making the TED Talk, what it, what it is about. And I just kind of want to tee you into that story. Yeah. I found myself after I worked at Calypso you know, for five or six years, and they're a consulting firm that works with you know, larger companies. And I got to work under the CEO of that firm, and he was a great mentor, and I, I learned a ton. But slowly as I was developing in my mid to late twenties in my career, found myself believing that the candle burnt at both ends Mm -hmm. and believing that uh, your pace was the most important indicator of the quality that you were bringing to any work that you were doing. Mm -hmm. And man, I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning to make sure people saw that I was emailing them before they woke up. And then they were going to think I was so productive. And I was just, man, I, I drank this jet fuel for so long that was all about pace and busyness and being a part of this tribe of people that were weary and malnourished Mm. and didn't have healthy relationships back at home. Mm. Again, not to knock that. I learned so much in that work, but then I decided I needed to slow down a little bit, stop traveling as much. I was living in Austin, but didn't have that much of a community. And so I, I, I left that role. I worked for a friend just on a contract basis for about a year. Uh, and then that, that evolved into me doing my own thing with Assemble, the consulting firm I started. Mm-hmm. And the course of those two years really required me to do a lot of undoing mm-hmm. around, around what I thought productivity looked like, what I thought me adding value to the world looked like, and realizing mm-hmm. that my best work, that for me to make my greatest contribution to the world, it didn't have to beat me to a pulp. Mm. So... I think that's such an interesting thought because as you're sharing your story of your 20s and that idea of like jet fuel, burning the fuel at both ends, I mean, that was me. And there's a part of it where I'm like, well, I am where I am in my career today because of 
me almost killing myself in my 20s, working those 80 to 100 hour work weeks, being like, I'll sleep when I die. <laughs> like, who, <laughs> like, I would pride myself on skipping meals because I was like, I don't need food. I just need to work. And I loved what I was doing so much that it felt like in the moment, it didn't really even feel like, oh, I'm doing this like really unhealthy thing. Like I loved it so much. Um, but where, where do you think that story of success has to feel like that to you where drinking the jet fuel, um, burning the candle at both ends? Why did that narrative exist to you? Partly because it was modeled and by who? By, by the guy that I was working for okay. uh, and, and, and the people whom I worked with. And then there was this other piece of me who, as I was thinking about the man that I want to be, recognized that no one ever built a country or grew a company or had an influence on their community without some kind of conflict. And they had to live some kind of uh, hero's journey narrative mm. in order to make the change that we respect them so much for and quote them in our books now. Um, but here's the thing that I started to realize, Catherine, was the, the work doesn't change. And, and as a matter of fact, whenever we do hard work, the gift that we receive in return is more hard work. And, and so I don't think that the amount of work or the things to be done are going to change. And I don't want to act like I'm trying to undermine the importance of doing something hard and difficult and investing our time and our lives into mm -hmm. it. But what I started to realize was the challenge wasn't in the work or the pace. The challenge is in where I was choosing to find identity. Mm. And when I started to find, and when I developed this identity uh, around my pace and around my sweat equity and around how much tireder I was than everyone else, mm. that turned out to be, man, a really unhealthy place to be. And yeah. I realized I had to have some kind of an internal shift around where I'm finding my identity and where my value existed. Yeah. I love that picture of like that sweat identity. So like what questions were being answered for you if other people saw you or you saw yourself as working hard or this, the sweat identity, what, it, what does that mean to you that you found your identity in it? Like what sort of, what sort of questions were being answered for you? Oh man, that's a great way to put it. Is, is he capable? Is he competent? Is mm -hmm. he, is he man enough? Because, mm -hmm. you know, you know, a man plays hurt and, and, and he sweats blood and, mm -hmm. and he keeps going. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's certainly some masculinity issue there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I loved that people said, oh yeah, you know, one, one of the, one of the things you need to know about Reagan is he wakes up at 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. uh, or I loved it whenever people would say, Reagan's the guy, like mm. no matter what you got to get done, Reagan will figure out a way to do it. Mm. And that affirmation, it meant a lot. And I, at the time, paid no attention to what the voice was saying inside of me. Yeah. So what were you afraid of people finding out about you? Let's say the, the narrative wasn't true. Let's, because obviously it's not like I can't find my identity externally. So like when, like that idea of even what you're saying of like masculinity or like pushing through, like push, push, push. What were you afraid of? Like, what were you afraid that people might discover about Reagan? One of my biggest fears is that the description of me is 
something along these lines that Reagan, great guy. He's in tune with his emotions. He's creative. He has a unique perspective on the world and he can bring energy into a room. Mm. But when it comes to like business acumen or driving results or measuring impact, uh, he kind of has his head in the clouds and he's a little, you know, too woo woo for that kind of stuff. Mm. And, you know, but I, when I look back, I look at the moments when I felt most alive in my life. And all of those moments have to do with uh, me being an artist, me writing creatively, mm -hmm. me telling stories, me bringing a group of people together to talk about what's really going on on the insides. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was afraid of it being validated that I didn't offer like the, 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 the currency that I played in was totally different than the currency that most of my peers played in mm. and that I was just kind of had my head in the clouds and I was too woo woo. Ooh. Does that make sense? It, it does. I'm like, I think woo woo means like different things to different people. So can you like unpack that? Like what if let's say like you blew it and you weren't able to burn the candle at both ends. Like, what were you afraid of your team finding out about you? That I didn't value the same things that they valued, mm -hmm. that I was more concerned with human interaction than the results mm -hmm. of the work. And as a matter of fact, I told my business partner this a year and a half ago. I said, man, you have to realize I have zero interest in what it looks like for us to successfully launch this product. Mm. I get the joy and the energy out of the collaboration that we have in this moment right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid to talk about that still because what kind of man am I if I'm not interested in the results or in shipping something over the finish line? What kind of person am I if I'm just interested in the connection that humans have with one another? Well, the thing about that is we look at thinkers like Simon Sinek and his whole thing is about the why, the connection. And if you want, if you actually want to drive for results in your company, what you really need to focus on is care for the human being. And in his TED Talk, How Great Leaders Inspire Action, he says, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do what you do. And companies like Apple, there's hundreds of different com computer companies out there but why is Apple consistently the top seller among all of them? And it's because they care for their people. They're trying to make better human beings. So the results come. So it's, it's counterintuitive to shift the conversation to, I want to care about the story and I want to care about the why. I mean, I think we need a balance of the both. But results would say that what you care about, Reagan, does create for a successful company. It might be a little bit of a longer path, but yeah. So that, I mean, that's what came to my mm -hmm. mind when you said that, Simon Sinek. Absolutely. And you could, and I'm so glad that you said that because I used to believe that the hardest part of work was the results and was driving, you know, the system that we've built and I thought, well, man, I don't find any identity in that. So what's wrong with me? But now, like with thinkers like Simon Sinek or Seth Godin or all the yeah. people that we love to read, the harder part of the work is this human element. Mm -hmm. And what I'm starting to realize is instead of being ashamed for being interested and focused on the human element, 
because I don't feel like I belong because that's my focus. I'm actually now, like you said, counterintuitively starting to realize that that's actually the higher calling Mm -hmm. and that's actually the more difficult work. Mm -hmm. And that's why people shy away from doing it, not because it's woo woo or fluffy, but because it's more difficult to show up and to be vulnerable and to create connections with people. Yeah. It's gray. There's Mm -hmm. nuance. And I am like, I love algebra. Algebra is my favorite class in high school. And I love formulas like Y equals MX plus B. One plus two equals three. And I can definitely implement that into my day-to-day life too. Like I'm very task oriented. And the thing that I feel like the older I get that I experience, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but life looks really black and white on paper, but you add your experience or I just make it personal. I add my experience to the black and white. And it's like, life is so full of gray. If, if knowledge was the only thing or the black and white formula to results were the only thing that we needed, then we'd all be very successful people. But there's a breakdown because we're not robots. We're, we're more than like the black and white text on a paper. There's so much nuance. So I think it's easy, easier to focus on the black and white, but it removes the human experience from, from everything. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And this is why I'm so passionate about the discipline of improv. Mm. Not only is a way to have fun, to loosen your mind and to create confidence, but also to show up in business and in relationships more effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, whenever I first started Assemble, my business partner said, dude, you need, to, you need to take improv classes. And after a year, I started to see that, yeah, we want, Catherine, for all of these black and white answers and formulas to be available to us. And as you just stated, in reality, they're not. So then what do we do? We have to have a mindset of openness and an ability to say yes to the things that are on the table right now and the people that are in the room, it might not be the perfect person on my team or there might be a rift amongst these Mm -hmm. couple of people, but guess what? It's what we have to play with now. And how do we choose to engage in this present moment to create the best thing that we can? Mm, That's good. That's good. The, the yes and mentality. That's really all I know about improv is from Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants. She talks about yes. And of you go into an improv class and instead of, someone saying something and then the next person being like, and then I woke up and it was all a dream. (laughs) Like start your own story. Like how can I enter into my days with that like improv mentality like that? I've never thought about it that way. Like what would you say would be like a practical way that what something that you've learned from improv that you can like take into your day-to-day life? Oh man, there's so many. Uh, First of all, I have to give a shout out Um, to Patricia Ryan Madsen, who wrote the book Improv Wisdom. Mm. And the tagline to the book is don't prepare, just show up. She's a Stanford Stanford professor who blends improv into her business classes. And so there's a glossary of things in there. I tell you, for me, number one, there's this idea of believing that the best decision was the one that you just made. Oh, that's so good. Because imagine I'm on stage and I just made a decision to say that I've got candy cane arms and it felt like a really weird thing to say. Do I have time with this live audience watching me to contemplate whether I'm dumb or whether that was a bad move? Or do I need to take advantage of the thing that was just laid on the table 
and figure out a way to collaborate with my scene partner mm-hmm. to move it forward. So it's like removing this like self-doubt almost. You have to kill that self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And whenever someone offers a suggestion, yeah, like you said, the discipline is to say yes and. No one wants to go see a scene where I get up on the stage to use the same example and say, I have candy cane arms. And then my scene p- partner says, no, you don't. We're at a hamburger joint. <laughs> like then where does my scene go? Like, okay. <laughs> but imagine if they say, yeah, you do. And I'm Santa Claus and I need those and I'm going to cut your arms off. And then we've got this great scene. So how do we even do in assemble my firm? We have a, an exercise called yes fest where when a team or has two different ideas on a direction that they need to go, Mm -hmm. we get them in the room and we say, okay, side number one, you get to get up and give your idea for the direction. And side number two, you totally disagree with where they need to go. Mm -hmm. But for the next five minutes, you need to yes and the crap out of their idea. Wow. And then they switch. And you would be amazed at the directions that are created when one team who, dis- who disagrees with the other team is willing to suspend that for a second and say, yeah, I'll play. Wow. I'll play along. Because I, when that happens, what comes to my mind is the humility to let go of being right. Yep. So I love being right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And my poor best friend who she's like the sweetest person in the world. I'm, I'll walk into a room. I'll be like, Oh, this should be better. And this should be better. And she's like, can you just like enjoy it for a second before you start like doing your mind thing of tearing it apart? It's like yeah. a gift, but also a curse. But I went through a leadership development training a couple of years ago where I was coached on something and I knew I was right. And in front of this whole room of people, the guy was like, you might be right, but how's that working for you? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're right. But to what expense, like it's hurting your relationships, it's hurting your business, it's hurting my romantic life, but Hey, you're right. So you can be right in your own little room of right by yourself. But what does that, that leaves you. And so it leaves me alone. <laughs> no, you're totally, man, we're, we're so aligned right now. I've got a blog post from some wisdom. My dad gave me one Christmas when I was totally right about a conflict with my brother. Mm. And on Christmas morning, he said, Reagan, okay, buddy, would you rather be right? Or would you rather have relationship? Mm. You get to pick. And so often that's the case. Yeah. You told on paper. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. But there's also this reality of the fact that, uh, relationships matter more than correctness sometimes. Creating and cultivating a regular rhythm of time and space with God is something that I am so passionate about. So I have launched my very first Bible study called the Space Between Bible Study and Meditation Guide. What's included inside, you'll get 20 days of devotionals, journal prompts, prayers, meditations, and worship experiences. I want to give you tools to create a regular rhythm of time with Jesus, of daily time seeking God. So whether you have five minutes a day or an hour or hours upon hours, you can use this study to go as deep as you'd like. My prayer is for you to experience God's love and presence in the everyday moments of your life. So if you are ready and you want to dive in, go to therefinedwoman.com slash prayer and grab your space between Bible study and meditation guide. 
want to kind of go back to your experience of working with this other company. You going through your 20s, experiencing like the jet fuel success. If success is going to happen, it's going to have to come at the expense of health and burning the candle at both ends. What was the catalyst of that ideology unraveling for you? Was there a specific moment? Was, was it a combination of moments? Yeah. You know, I found that I was able to control so much of my surroundings during that period of time. I could mm-hmm. control my pace. Uh, I could control flying on the same airline. So I got really great mm-hmm. status and I got upgrades uh, I could control, uh, you know, I was making good money. And the one thing that I was failing to pay attention to was um, where, again, it comes back to this identity thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one thing that I couldn't control was the fact that my identity was not in that work. And uh, as long as I ran fast enough, and as long as I traveled enough, and as long as I spent a weekend in Belize, then I never really paid attention to that. But I remember uh, breaking my leg because oh. of a, a stupid uh, wrestling match at a bachelor party for my best friend. Uh, the girl I was dating at the time that I just had this, I was way too uh, codependent on, uh, had broken up with me at the time. And I was really starting to find less and less purpose in the work that I was doing. And, you know, I remember like having to take one of those showers where you wrap your leg in a trash bag and duct tape. So, you know, it didn't get on my cast and thinking to myself, okay, so now that I have to slow down and actually think about what's going on mm. inside of me, mm. who, who the hell am I? Wow. Where am I finding my identity? Do I believe the story I've been telling myself. And so that, that forced me, that period of time forced me to slow down Mm. and reconcile some things that I'd been avoiding. And the, the voice that came through the clearest was this, Reagan, you can't do this alone and you can't have all the control you think you can have. Mm. Um, yeah. Wow. That's, that's profound. I, I think sometimes God gives us opportunities in our lives to slow down, like a forced slowing down to like save us, like save our lives. And I know that happened for me a couple years ago um, where I like God, literally my life stopped in its tracks. I was going full force in my career, kind of similar to things that you're talking about. And I started having debilitating anxiety attacks within like a month or two. I could hardly leave my house. I developed all these autoimmune disorders and food allergies. And I mean, I literally stopped, like my life stopped. And it was one of the hardest things that I've ever gone through. And it was really scary. And there were days where I just like could hardly get out of bed and was struggling so bad with anxiety attacks. Like I would be blacking out and I just was like, am I crazy? Like, is this my new normal? And I look back at that and let me tell you, healing from that has not been easy. And we're two and a half years down the road. And I still, I think there's always opportunities to grow and I still have moments of struggle, but I'm like, praise God that that happened when I was 30 
as opposed to me having a heart attack and dying like in a decade yes. or two. But like I had to go, I had to be like literally stopped in my tracks. And it sounds like you literally had to get a broken leg to come to this moment of like, who am I? Like, what is going on here? And I don't know mm-hmm. if it was like a painful process for you, but like I did not want to stop. But like now that I did, I'm like, I'm so grateful. Yeah. That the, well, So that moment, you know, uh, it instituted a lot of necessary changes mm-hmm. in my life. And you better be right. And so for me, it was about the same two and a half, three years ago. And so then I decided that I'm, I, I got to start going to counseling. Like mm-hmm. I got to go and see someone to talk to, to this about. And this is what I think when we talk about the, the, in the Ted talk, the thing that I talked about, does our best work have to kill us? Do we really need to find identity and productivity? It's not only because we want to be seen as productive and capable, but it's also because we're afraid of the things that we're going to have to deal with if we slow down mm-hmm. and ask ourselves who we really are. And yeah, I think that there's some freedom and peace in my life now. I know that there is, but guess what? Just like you, the first thing that happened when I decided to slow down was I realized all of these separate negative tapes that were playing in my life about my value, about what other people said about me when I wasn't in the room, mm-hmm. about, and I, I had to deal with those demons. And then I had to deal with some demons around what does it mean to be a man? Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, yeah, after a path of hard work, you get to a point of freedom but none of that would have happened if I didn't break my leg. I might still be drinking the same jet fuel. Mm, yeah. And what does it mean to be a man? <laughs> um, you know, I'm still working on that one. When I, I hit puberty really late. I don't even know if I'd hit puberty when we knew each other in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, early on, I had this thing, you know, sports meant manhood and this and that and toughness. And I was never really athletic. And so there continues to be this insecurity that follows me around an ability to withstand physical, uh, you know, activity. Or, and I was this poetry major in, in college and I was a theater kid in high school. Mm-hmm. And one thing, though, I've come to realize that I think really does uh, mean manhood is bravery mm-hmm. and you grow up and you learn that bravery can mean different things. And for me, the bravest thing that I can do lately is stop and wonder what it is I'm really made to do and think about the words that really guide me and think about the work that I really want to engage in Mm -hmm. uh, and choose to do it. And I'm able just lately to reconcile that that's very brave Mm -hmm. for me on my journey. And I think that that, that, that can be manly yeah. or womanly. It is. I mean, it's because what you're talking about is it's one thing you have to have bravery to give yourself space to pause and think what's working here. What's not working here. What is the, what is the path I feel called to go on? And then the courage and bravery it takes to start going down that path because for me, as I don't even know if this is like a man versus woman thing, I think as a human thing, mm-hmm. it's one thing for me to acknowledge, this is the thing I feel like I'm supposed to do with my life. For me, it's speaking to women and all I've wanted is this platform to share my story, share my voice. And then God is opening these doors through the podcast, through the articles, through different speaking opportunities 
And I know this is the thing I've wanted, but then the opportunities start coming and I freak the F out. I'm like, <laughs> ah, no, never mind. I'm not the girl for the job. And it takes a whole other level of courage to stay the course. And that for me is one of the hardest things is like, I can acknowledge this is the thing I'm supposed to be doing. This is the thing I was designed and created to be a voice to women. Like that's it. Mm-hmm. But to stay the course has been, that has been a different kind of hard. It's not like a burning the candle on both ends type thing, but it's a like moving through my own self-doubt, self-sabotage and from the inside out being like, I am worthy enough to speak into this, even though it's what I've wanted all along. What, yeah. What do you think of that? I just, I feel like I just like walked into a room naked saying that. (laughs) That's great. Welcome to the party. I mean, yeah, it's, and it's the most, just, it's the craziest paradox for me that we can desire these things so deeply. And then once we're given them, we shy away. Mm -hmm. I know you're a fan of Stephen Pressfield's Mm -hmm. The War of Art. And he, he's got this line in it that says, in the cave you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. Mm. And, and then I also think about the Marianne Williamson quote that it's not our darkness that frightens us. It's our light. You know, this idea that we're powerful beyond measure. And why do you think that? I mean, let's take away the we. Like, why do you, why are you afraid of the light? Like, What scares you about that? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with being held accountable. So I enjoy the delivery of the work that I'm engaged in around helping people collaborate and see magic in every moment and be vulnerable. But once I deliver that work, then what's going to be expected of me? Mm. Uh, Am I now going to be on the hook to be uh, more consistent or more responsible than I have been? And do I have what it takes to, to level up? to the kind of person that that has a voice that other people listen to and that people might follow. Yeah. I'm terrified of that. Yeah. Like there come there comes a responsibility with that. Totally. My there is a girl, one of my good friends that was on the podcast Carmina, she talks about this process of her doing a lot of like internal work to becoming this really powerful like badass influential woman. And one of the biggest things for her was becoming a a person of integrity and Mm -hmm. realizing if I want to use my voice or be a leader, which the parentheses is every human being is a leader. Like we all have a sphere of influence that I, I get to be my word and leaders are held to a higher standard. And that can feel daunting if, if we say so, or it can be like, let's rise to the occasion. But I, I think like I can resonate with that. Like, will once, once I position myself as an expert on the topic, then I guess underneath that for me, I'm clearly externally processing right now is like, am I good enough? Like, am I worthy? Am I worthy of the position? Like who made, who gave me the right? Yeah. Who am I to do this? That's a big one for me is, okay, I still feel like I'm a 17-year-old kid in high school in my head. So is it really the most responsible thing for me to do to say, I'm an expert in what it looks like to facilitate a good conversation in a room full of people? Mm -hmm. What if I'm not? And primarily, I think that it has to do with what if I put out my unique perspective into the world and it takes so much out of me to push it through 
and I, there's crickets on the other side. And I've now, like you said, walked out naked and said, this is the way that I think a whole life, you know, is lived. And everyone says, you're crazy, man. And then I get kicked out of the tribe or whatever, you know? So I think it's important to unpack those fears for ourselves. Like, okay, so what if that happened? What if you put yourself out there? Let's say you did your TED Talk on Mm -hmm. all the stuff that we're talking about. No one listened to it. And not only did no one listen to it, but they thought it was all BS. Yep. What if that happened? What then? Like, would it have still been worth doing it? Let's say that happened. What would your response be? Would it still be worth doing it was the question that I heard the most there. Mm-hmm. And, and to be able to answer that effectively, you need to say, well, where am I finding my identity mm-hmm. again? Mm-hmm. Am I finding my identity in the thumbs up or thumbs down I get on YouTube? By the way, some asshole out there gave me one thumbs down. And I think about that more than the <laughs> thumbs up. Oh, of course, we uh, all do. We all do. Yeah. <laughs> the one and, negative review and there's like thousands yeah. of good ones. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, or do I find my identity in the fact that I believe that I'm connected to this bigger force that's going on in the world. And I believe that the world would be a better place if we all stopped and realized that what we do doesn't define who we are. Then yes, if I'm finding my identity there and it's crickets, then no big deal. Mm. Uh, so how do we reconcile where we find our identity? And, if, and that's deep and hard work, as we've discussed, years of work. But the simple trick that my dad taught me years ago was simply this, Reagan, no one is thinking about you. Mm. Like It doesn't matter if they were in the audience, they've walked away and they've responded to an email and they're worried about dinner that night. So what's the worst that could happen? Uh, everyone forgets about you and goes on with their lives, mm-hmm. right? The stakes aren't as high as we think they are yeah. sometimes. Yeah, that's so true. One of my mentors, a we talk about this in regards to dating because as a single woman and a lot of the listeners of the podcast are young single women is like dating can feel like the stakes are so high. But my mentor always says like, what if we viewed it as stepping off a curb, not a cliff, like Mm -hmm. taking away the risk. And that's what I hear in what you just said. Like it's a curb, not a cliff. And I wonder what your life would look like, my life would look like if we approached like all of it, like, okay, it's a curb. I'm literally stepping off a curb. And if we realized the amazing gift that that is, that we, most of us who are listening to this, live in a place of relative safety Mm. and security and the stakes in our lives are curbs and If we just have the freedom to recognize that, what ripples might that make in our communities, Mm -hmm. you know, in our own lives? Absolutely. That's good. Um, Well, we only have time for one more question. And I seriously, I have a list of 30 other questions I didn't even get to with you. (laughs) Bring them on. um, What do you wish you could tell your younger self? Like if there's one thing. Man, younger Reagan was this little kid with... Coke bottle glasses and huge magnified eyes. <laughs> and he was pretty shy, but he was an artist and he saw magic everywhere. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the story of most kids is that gets beat out of them and they learn how to do something else. But if I could tell him anything, I would say, 
this identity that you have right now, the things that bring tears to your eyes, the things that give you the chills, the things that inspire you, that's the same drum beat that you're going to feel like you need to march to when you're an adult. Uh, and it's valuable. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise and stay the course. Stay the course. That's good. And just one more, because I can't help myself. What do you know for sure? I know for sure that every single moment we interact with one another, every, anytime people are gathered in a room or waiting for a train, uh, it's an opportunity for magic to happen. And I don't mean thunderbolts and lightning. I mean the magic of connection and the magic of realizing that maybe I'm not the only one that feels this way. And I know for sure that if each of us stop and look and slow down and choose to be present and recognize that the real gift at the end of the day is going to be a time that we got to connect with someone and to know a little bit more about them, uh, I believe a lot of our problems would be fixed. Agreed. That's good. Well, thank you, Reagan. Thank you for just sharing your heart and your honesty and congratulations on your TED talk. It's a huge <laughs> accomplishment. And I just, I really truly believe that this is the beginning of a completely new and exciting uh, season for you. So thank you for, I'm thank you for doing this and I'm so glad we reconnected. Yay. The internet. Oh. <laughs> I love it. I celebrate that. And, and thank you for doing this work yeah. because I think for us as we all move forward to be more vulnerable and be more courageous, we have to do it together. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. And lastly, where can people keep in touch with you? How can they find out about what you're doing? Would love it if you went to reaganpugh.com, R-E-A-G-A-N-P-U-G-H.com. There you can find my regular blog, video of the TED Talk and other talks I've given, as well as links to my socials. And you can sign up to get new blog posts every time I post them via email. Love it. Awesome. Well, have a great day and um, yeah, we'll chat soon. Thank you, Catherine. Okay, bye. Bye. Harris, and you've been listening to the Refined Collective podcast. You can follow our journey on Instagram at The Refined Woman, our website, therefinedwoman.com, for show notes, other features and interviews, and a deeper look into our tribe. Find us on iTunes, The Refined Collective. Subscribe, rate, review, and leave us some love. Join me next time, and thank you so much for listening. And one last thing, in case you ever forget, you are not alone. Your story matters, and you belong here. <laughs> <laughs>